Hello everyone. As many of us are currently confined at home in many places of the world, and while we keep in our minds and in our hearts those who have no choice but to be at risk from the ongoing worldwide pandemic because they're doctors, nurses, workers, homeless, incarcerated, or in any other precarious situation, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast to use this time to reflect and organize. The concept is very simple. Every day, we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. We thank you very much for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone. Today is the seventh episode of the daily podcast, uh, A Moment of True Decolonization. And our guest is uh, Anna Naomi de Souza, uh, who is a documentary filmmaker and writer. And her work is about spatial politics, identity, history, and resistance, which is exactly what we will be talking about today. Uh, hello, Anna. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for being back uh, on one of the media of the Phenomenalist. And uh, what is uh, what is that moment you wanted to tell us about? Okay, well, thanks so much for having me. It's been really nice this week to have something to concentrate on. Um, and also just really fun for me in a way to dive back into um, the thing I want to talk about. Um, I thought, you know, the... the this true in your um, proposal is obviously like this sort of question that makes you suddenly think, oh God, like, is this actually a true moment of decolonization or not? And that's kind of natural because there are so many examples where when we delve into things, we find all of these problematic questions, right? Um, surrounding lots of decolonization, things that at least purport to be decolonization. And I think that the thing that I want to talk about today is actually a really complicated history. Um, and some of the people that I'm going to mention then went on to be involved in, in very problematic and sometimes terrible things. Um, so it's not an uncomplicated history. Um, but I still think it's such a powerful moment. and It's such a great story <laughs> um, that this was the thing that I wanted to talk about. So um, I want to talk about... Uh, the Casa do Estudante do Império, um, or the House of the Students of the Empire. Um, it's an institution that was created by the fascist regime of Salazar in Portugal in the 1940s. Um, and it was created to kind of foster imperial um, cultural and political ideas of Portugalidad, of Portugueseness, in younger generations of students who were coming from the colonies to study in Lisbon. And it's a plan that backfired in the most beautiful, wholehearted way. <laughs> so it's really like my favorite fuck you to imperialism historically. <laughs> um, and it's a really wonderful story because it's about poetry and it's about the power of words and it's about how words can let feelings and ideas travel um, across the world and how they can bring people together and struggle. Um, so I first heard about the Casa de Estudantes de Imperio when I was at university doing my undergraduate studies um, and I was the only person taking um, the course in uh, Lusophone African literature. 
uh, with Professor David Brookshaw, who is a translator of um, Mia Kortu and Paulina Shiziani um, and, and a professor of, um, of Lusophone African literature. Um, so, until the 1940s in Lisbon, there had been residencies for students coming from Portugal's colonies in Lisbon, in Porto, and in Coimbra. So you'd have the Casa de Moçambique, Casa de Macau, Casa dos Estudantes de Angola. And these would be students who had some white Portuguese parentage or were considered mixed race or mestizo. Um, but also some who were considered assimilado, assimilated, and that meant that they had reached the top of the ladder of this racialized hierarchy that was created under Portuguese colonialism. Um, and at that time, the students, particularly the students in the Angolan residency, had been pushing for a meeting place for all of the students coming from different colonies um, where they could share their experience, they could help each other out, um, and they, they would have a place to be together. Um, now, this is Portugal in the 1940s, in, right in the middle of the dictatorship of Salazar. Um, it's already been installed for some 20 years. Um, and the, the PID, the fascist police and the regime, they felt that it would be, um, it would make their lives easy, it would be beneficial to them to have all of these students under one roof where they could keep an eye on them. And <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, you know, this is their idea. So, so they were supported by, um, for example, they were supported by Marcelo Caetano, who later succeeded uh, Salazar, and was at the time um, the director of the uh, Portuguese youth, you know, the sort of fascist Portuguese youth organization, Monsidad. Um, and I think it's also important to remember that really this was, it was in line with these, ki with these kind of lusotropicalist ideas and also the idea that all of the colonies were an, a part of Portugal extended. Um, the overseas territories as they were rebranded under the Estado Novo. Um, and so it was as if they were Portuguese people coming from faraway regions of Portugal. Um, so the Casa de Estudantes is created um, by the regime, inaugurated by the Minister of Colonies, and you know much applauded. There are many newspaper cuttings from the time celebrating it and announcing that it's been that it's been um, inaugurated, and it becomes a sort of home away from home for students from all of the Portuguese colonies. So, from Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Cabo Verde, Santo Tomé and Príncipe, um, even Goa, Macau, and East Timor. Um, and it had reading rooms, libraries, resident quarters, spaces for socialising. And very soon it becomes this really important cultural um, space of, of uh, music, of social dances, um, of poetry, and of course also of political discussion. Um, and so from the time that it opens, there are many students who pass through, it who it's through its doors, um, among them Emilio Cabral, Agostinho Neto, um, Joaquim Chissano, Marcelino dos Santos, names that many people will recognise. So what happened um, in, in, in the casa is that students began to share and reflect on their 
shared experience of, colon of colonialism. And they began to deconstruct, question, criticize uh, Portuguese colonialism. And at the same time within the Gaza, you had um, the a sort of circulation of black literature of the time. So coming from the Americas, from the Caribbean. And it's this literature coming in that begins to sow the seeds of anti-colonialism within the Gaza. So the Gaza starts to, you know, it's this place with a kind of cultural mandate, you know, it's, and, it's a, and it's a vibrant cultural space and this place of literature, reading, writing, debate, and it also begins to publish its own imprints. So the most prolific of these was um, a bulletin called Messaging, um, and this included various different kinds of writings, essays, um, poems, extracts of uh, fiction and non-fiction work, um, and a lot of the students would be publishing under pseudonyms. So you had Antonio Neto, which was Agostinho Neto, whose name was in fact Antonio Agostinho Neto, um, Noemi de Sousa, who was writing under the pseudonym Vera Micaia, um, Amilcar Cabral, um, who was publishing under the name Arlindo, Arlindo Antonio. Um, and this, of course, starts to attract the attention of the peak of the fascist police. But I think it's also important to to sort of think about what was going on beyond Portugal at the time and, and what were the things that they were being influenced by. Because the 40s was such a significant moment. Um, you know, the ideas of the Harlem Renaissance had reached Europe. Um, there were a number of Africans gathering in Europe. So Paris, of course, where you are, is, becomes a really important um, focal point at that moment. You had Leopold Seda Senghor, who published his Anthologie de la Nouvelle Poésie Negre et Malgache, de langue française, um, and that really made these ideas of negritude um, very widespread at the time, and that certainly reached the Kaz and had a big influence on them. And, you know, the Senghors, <laughs> I mean, because obviously I've been going back and reading these things, and, and Senghor, you know, the Senghor's anthology was really, it had this rousing introduction from Jean-Paul Sartre, um, but it was also criticised. It was criticised by Fanon as being essentialist, um, and, but it, it provoked a debate and it provoked a lot of thought. And I think in terms of what was going on in Portugal and the Portuguese colonies at the time, um, you know, you'd had this kind of rebranding of Portuguese um, colonialism. So... They had abolished slavery, but slavery in most of the colonies had been replaced by a system of contracted labour um, and conditions for most of the native populations in the colonies were extremely, extremely bad. Um, and they were obviously still violent and racialized um, systems. So in Lisbon, it's these things that... Um, these sort of currents and forces that come together. It's the exposure to these early writings on black consciousness on the one hand. Um, it's realising and talking about and reflecting on the realities of Portuguese colonialism whilst they're in the metropolis. And I think it's also the importance of their own writing um, and poetry that's bringing life and, and a sort of force into these ideas that begin to really gather momentum at this, at this particular moment. So... 
1951, Mario Pinto d'Andrade um, begins to compile um, a first collection of poetry of students from the Casa. It's called the uh, Caderno de Poesia Negra de Expressão Portuguesa, a book of black poetry in Portuguese. And it clearly pays homage to the anthology com compiled by Leopold Singer. Um, and it also specifically mentions um, poets like Langston Hughes and County Cullen from, from America. It mentions apartheid South Africa. It mentions Cuban poets like Nicolas Guillén and, and for example, uh, Aimé de Césaire. So these are the sort of like key references that you can see um, influencing this work. And the poetry of this collection is overtly anti-colonial. Um, it's reflective of the black experience under Portuguese colonialism. Um, a lot of the writers are making reference to their parents and to their to their grandparents, to their own personal experiences. Um, and there, there's a sort of explicit explicit articulation of the of the of the violence, but also the violent, the sort of cultural violence of colonization, of the Europe, European colonization on Africa, and on African cultural practices. And then you start to see um, some of the poets using Cape Verdean Creole, uh, using Kimbundu, um, and challenging the idea of Portuguese supremacy through this writing. Um, so, for example, in, um, in Agostinho Neto's um, poem, which I pulled out here, uh, this is a poem called Aspiração. I'll just read the first three lines. Ainda o meu canto dolente e a minha tristeza no Congo, na Georgia, no Amazonas. So you can hear the references within the poems of other um, locations of black struggle. Um, there's a poem by Noemi de Souza called Deixa Passar o Meu Povo. And it specifically references listening to on the radio to Paul Robeson's 1953 recording of Let My People Go. Um, in Aldo do Espírito Santo's poetry, for a poem, uh, La no Agua Grande, for example, she speaks about um, the people working on the roça, on the cacao plantations, under a system of legalized slave labor. Um, so this, for me, is the moment of decolonization that I wanted to talk about. It's the publication of this anthology. Um, it's the sort of uh, apex of this, of this moment, of all of these forces that have been gathering um, within and around the casa. And for me, it's a sort of, you know, it's a moment of decolonization of the mind um, and of language um, and a sort of reclamation of something. Um, so the publication of this, of this book of poetry had, um, had a significant impact. Publications like these coming out of the Casa were printed clandestinely and smuggled to the colonies on ships. Um, it was after this um, that Mario Dandrade had to um, leave Portugal. Um, he was afraid for his life and he left. Um, and this sort of literary revolution that, that's happening here was, of course, part of, an, of a real political, um, the sort of building of political um, movements. So the Gaza became not just um, this sort of hotbed of this literary movement, but also... Um, of political radicalization. So members of the Casa were forming clandestine networks with the MUD, uh, the, um, you know, the sort of coalition of democratic forces opposing the regime, also with the Communist Party. 
um, both of which were, well, me, uh, yeah, the Communist Party suddenly was completely underground. Um, and the Casa, of, uh, as I'd mentioned earlier, was and its members were, were being surveyed by the secret police. Um, in 1954, um, some of the students from the Casa created the Centro de Estudos Africanos, or Center for African Studies, which was actually run out of um, the home of an aunt of um, Aldo Spirito Santo. And it was a cover. I mean, it was basically a cover for what was the burgeoning anti-colonial struggle. And it was a centre that becomes the harbour of the anti-colonial movement, the MAC, and comprising these different agitators from Angola. So Agostinho Neto, Mario de Andrade, Lucio Lara, Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau, uh, Emilca Cabral, Luís Cabral, Cabral uh, from Mozambique, Martins Santos, Joaquim Sano, Santo Main Principe, you have Aldo Espírito Santo, of course, uh, Miguel Trovoada. So by the early 1960s, the fascist regime is, is becoming extremely concerned about student uh, movements in general and their potential. Um, but by this point, really, it's far too late. You know, it's the winds of change are blowing. Um, in 1960, Emilka Cabral had returned to Africa. Um, he, from Guinea-Conakry, he was working with Mario de Andrade and the Viriato de Cruz of the MPLA. They then went off to Leopoldville. Um, in 1961, 100 African students absconded from Portugal um, via France to various points, uh, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria. Um, and um, with the help... Uh, still, if the Portuguese Communist Party um, would carry on organising students who were still in Lisbon. Um, and in 1961, the war for independence began uh, in Angola and then sparked the other uh, anti-colonial movements in the other countries. So the Casa de Estudantes do Império was eventually closed in 1965 um, when the PID realised that they couldn't control it. But, you know, even they would have had to admit it, that that their plan had sort of backfired spectacularly um, so by the time Antonio uh, Antonio Salazar fell uh, in his bath and banged his head in 1968 um, the anti-colonial movements in all of the colonies were in, were in full swing and within seven years they would win their independence um, so that's that's the brief story of the Casa de Chardin-Saint-Pérou um, and this collection of poetry which sparked not just one but many revolutions Thank you so much, Anna. I think that was that was really, 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 really great. Uh, and I invite also uh, the listeners who can understand French to listen to the podcast we released last week as part of as a fourth episode of our series called uh, Diaspora et Imaginaire Politique with uh, Hugo Deschentos. Uh, about about the Portuguese diaspora in France because this this is one of the branching from where you left off the story. So I mean, of of course not from the side of the of the of the colonized uh, themselves, but of the side of uh, those who who refused to go fight uh, the colonial wars in Angola, in Guinea, and in uh, Mozambique. So. Thank you, thank you again very much for uh, transporting us uh, in the 50s in this incredible house of the student of the empire and, uh, and the, most, the most beautiful <laughs> disrailing <laughs> of, imperial, of imperial strategies. 
and uh, and take good care. Thank you. <laughs> That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Finalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.